Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, Frank McKenna. If you've got something that people here think you can add value to its growth, its reputation, its fabulous culture, then they don't care where you're from. Frank is the founder and chief executive of Downtown in Business, a lobbying and membership group for businesses and cities. He was a politician before that. At one point, Insider Magazine described him as the most powerful politician in the Northwest. Frank's got an impressive CV, serving as leader of the Northwest Regional Assembly, amongst many other political roles. After that, he entered the business world and is now recognised as one of the most influential business voices in the region. I've got a lot of respect for Frank because he cares about people, but as he says, he won't tolerate dopes. You're going to hear from Frank about how he's delivered for Manchester, for Lancashire and for the North West. Frank, thanks for joining me on We Built This City. Good to be here, Lisa. Thank you. So you're an adopted Manc. You were born in Bootle and you were brought up in Skem, as you call it. But I think it's fair to say you've definitely been accepted on the streets and in the corridors of Manchester. <laughs> so, but first, I've got to ask you, because there's always been a famous rivalry between Manchester and Liverpool, how does a Scouser launch a lobbying and membership group in Manchester? <laughs> <laughs> what a great first question. And uh, I'm delighted to be taking part in this podcast because I've listened to many of them. They're fantastic. So it's a privilege to, to be here with you. Um, I think that the simple answer to that question is actually, despite the accent, I was brought up, as you said, in Skem, which is Lancashire. Mm. And so actually, in terms of my career uh, in politics, it was Lancashire based. And when you're in a town such as Skelmersdale, you look both ways in terms of nights out, shopping, mm. um, you know, what cities that you're going to visit and you're going to hang out in. And so I spent as much time as a teenager in Manchester as I did in Liverpool, although all my family are from Liverpool and I'm a massive Evertonian, as mm. you know. So the simple answer is that, as I say, despite the accent, I've always had a, an affection for Manchester. And then through the political career, which I'm sure we'll talk about mm. a bit later on, I got to know Sir Richard Leeson, and Sir Howard Bernstein really well. And, you know, even though those rivalries do exist between geographical locations, Lancashire and Manchester, Liverpool and Leeds, mm. the fact of the matter is that if you've got half a brain, you couldn't do anything other than admire the way in which Richard and Howard ran Manchester mm. and made Manchester, let's face it, the capital of the north. Yeah. Combined with that, Tony Wilson... Uh, was a good mate of mine from about the mid-90s. So Tony and I got to know each other initially through the Upfront programme that he used to do with Lucy Meacock, so I used to appear on on that fairly regularly. Uh, And then he came up to County Hall in Preston one day to interview me, and he brought his lovely partner, Yvette, and we just had lunch and just got on. Uh, and so a friendship started. So it was. It went from being a sort of, you know, a journalist politician relationship to a genuine friendship. And he was a genius, uh, you know. And, and I don't use that word lightly. You know, I don't, I don't 
sort of say, oh, wasn't he fantastic because he's no longer with us? He, he was a genius. Uh, and I think you still see Tony's legacy wherever you go in this city. And he'd done a lot of work in Lancashire with us. Uh, and he'd done a lot of work in Liverpool, actually. So even though he had that title of Mr Manchester... Tony was very much somebody who loved the North and loved the Northwest. And so although his heart was always here, he was very much somebody who saw the potential of the region and saw the potential of Liverpool as well. So Tony and I struck up a great friendship, had some great nights out, um, usually in Manchester. <laughs> had a few where in Liverpool. Where did you go in Manchester? He, oh, he used to take me to... Well, he had a great apartment, didn't he? It was the first... Uh, it was rumoured to be the first million-pound apartment in Manchester. I think it was a bit of spin, to be honest. But it was a beautiful apartment. Uh, and so on the, the, the water side there, we used to go to those bars and then we just trot into town. He wasn't a poser, despite mm. the fact that he probably came across as that to a lot of people. He, he much preferred sort of quiet corner in a bar or a pub having a pint. So we didn't go anywhere particularly posh. Um, we just used to hang around in um, bars and, and pubs around Manchester. We went to the Atlas quite a bit because yes, uh, well. that was handy. Mm. Uh, and we had some good nights out. We did go out in Liverpool occasionally, always got stick whenever he went to Liverpool <laughs> because he did have this, yeah. people did perceive that he had this hatred of Liverpool mm. in a sense, but it was all football rivalry. And actually, most people with half a brain in Liverpool had a lot of affection for Tony as well, which was referenced actually at his funeral because, you know, a lot of scousers turned up and there was a big uh, bouquet sent, you know, with love from oh, Liverpool yeah. uh, to his funeral, which, uh, again, as you would expect, was a fantastic show. It was a great send-off for Tony. So that's sort of, you know, my... Strong affection for this place came from an admiration of the way the city was run. Tony and the people he introduced me to. So I met people like um, Peter Saville, um, Colin Sinclair, um, Tom Bloxham, mm -hmm. you know, all these guys who, you know, were very entrepreneurial, very committed to the city, very creative. And so how could you not? want to work in a place like that. And so obviously years later when I got the opportunity to come into Manchester with downtown, I absolutely jumped at the chance and we've been here around 10 years now, absolutely love the place, as you know. Mm. And the other thing I'd say is wherever I go, because we've taken the brand right across the north, we're up in Birmingham, the Midlands now, and even London, people ask me about Manchester's success and... I don't think we've ever rocked up anywhere where they haven't said to me, can we do an event with our Bernstein? Really? Because again, that man's mm. a legend, you, you know, and you look at chief executives of local authorities and he is in a different league to anyone that I've ever worked with. And I've worked with some great chief executives, but that guy has something about him, um, a, an intellect, uh, an entrepreneurial spirit that you don't often get in the public sector. And, you know, that combination of him and Richard, and I do think sometimes Richard gets forgotten. You know, chief executives are only as good as the freedom that they're allowed to have from the leader. And I think that sense that Manchester comes first for both Howard and Richard meant that they were able to combine their talents, which do complement one another yeah. and really drive the city forward and it's as I say it's just a, an absolute pleasure to work in Manchester love the place mm. I was going to say to you who opened the door for you but it sounded like the door was already open before you even started <laughs> it, was, it was it was to an yeah. extent um, but you know the the thing that 
I always say about people in terms of this city is that if you've got something that people here think you can add value to its growth, its reputation, um, its fabulous culture, then they don't care where you're from. They don't care whether you're a Scouser, they don't care if you're a Brummie, if you're from Glasgow, but you've got to be able to deliver. You can't con people here, you can't pretend, you can't try and kid people. Just not going to work in Manchester. Manx are, are, are pretty switched on. And they've got long memories, so if so, you don't oh, deliver, they do. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and by the way, rightly so, yeah. I think it's part of the, the ingredients which make this place work because, as I say, don't care where you're from. But bloody hell, you got to you know you got to earn your money, you got to earn your reputation, rightly so. I completely agree. I mean, we say that to clients who've said it for years who've come from London and they want to come and do a project or you know a piece of work in the city. We just say you can't come on that train once a month, come and kiss a few babies, <laughs> yeah. go to Piccolinos, and then go back down. I mean, you've got to make, you've got to contribute, you've got to be part of the legacy, and pretty much all of them have done that and you're right as long as you're prepared to like leave Manchester in a better place you then you're welcomed here and then the other point I just thought then we were talking about the bullshitting is that somebody who used to work with us a very long time ago she got her first job she'd worked for MUTV as an apprentice and then she came to us and then she went off to LA got a job in PR and has had a very successful career in PR in LA and she puts it down to what she learned in Manchester because she said on the West Coast people are, well, you know, see you next week, we'll meet for lunch. She said, but she does it. She and her team mm. do the things they say yeah. they'll do when they said they'll do them. Yeah. We said, and it's not very common that in California. It's interesting, isn't mm. it? I do think you have to have an authenticity mm. and a consistency as well. I think, you know, again, one of the reasons why this place has been successful politically is because for 30 years you've had that consistent approach. Yeah. So you say to Richard, are you a Corbynite? Are you a, a Blairite? Are you New Labour? Are you modern? Yeah. He'll always say, I'm Manchester Labour. And he's practised that since day one. So he's forged relationships with governments of all colours, with different types of personalities within government and cabinet ministers. You know, there's no coincidence that George Osborne, a Conservative Chancellor, chose Manchester to drive forward the Northern Powerhouse yeah. because he knew that you had a place here with pragmatic politicians who could put tribalism aside and could deliver. And if you're going to invest in a big project, a big devolution project, as the government were at that time, the Cameron Osborne uh, government, then you want to know that it's going to be a success. And so you pick partners that are going to deliver for you. And the fact that they came to a Labour city and a city, let's face it, that's always going to be Labour. This is never going to turn into uh, a Tory powerhouse, is it? Whatever happens, um, I, I think is a further demonstration, further evidence of how well respected Manchester and its, its political leadership is. Mm. And there are a lot of Scousers here. <laughs> there are. Well, there was a group set up. I've never been involved in it called uh, SWIM, yeah. Scousers Working in Manchester. And, you know, I think that's great. And if it's still going, then, then good luck to that network. I always distance myself from that because I don't consider myself to be a Scouser working in Manchester. I consider myself to be somebody who's very passionate about this city mm. and somebody who, as I say, was brought up in Lancashire. And Lancashire is sort of the glue, I think, that holds the North West together. And so for me, this Scouser working in Manchester thing doesn't really, in my opinion, involve me in any way, <laughs> sense or form, because as I say, that the accent aside... 
I just feel part of the furniture here. Whenever I'm in Manchester, I feel right at home. Definitely. I mean, I suppose you're like the the Tony Wilson of business, aren't you? Oh, the fact God. that you man, well, you know, you love of the North. I suppose it's the same thing. It all knits together, doesn't it? Well, he and I were very involved in trying to get devolution yeah. uh, for the Northwest and set up a campaign to do that. I mean, I, I, I can only wish I was as cool as Mr. Wilson, <laughs> and it's very kind of you to say it. But you know, certainly we sh- we shared that commitment, we shared that passion. But I think ultimately, what I sort of took this message to Liverpool when we set up downtown back in 2003 was it's no good trying to compete with Manchester because Manchester is at least 10 years ahead of any other city in my opinion outside of the capital so don't compete complement and try and actually benefit from the fantastic things that are happening there. And I think many politicians in Liverpool get that now. So the fact that they're working together, that they're collaborating far better, there's more cohesion. We're talking about infrastructure projects that will link the two cities in a more effective and efficient way. I think that's great news for the North West. And there seems to be much less rivalry now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the foot, but that's that's healthy. Mm. You you know, again, I I don't think we should shy away from competition. I think it's good, and there will be times when we compete for things. You know, Manchester will want to do something that Liverpool goes for. You know, whether it be, I don't know, in the future, you know, hosting World Cup matches and concerts. You know, if Everton's new stadium comes off. They'll be a big player in that market. And that's fine because I think, you know this, Lisa, we get driven by our competition in business. If we were the only people in our space and everybody was asleep, then it'd take an edge from us. So I, I think if you've got a rival down the road and you're looking at them and thinking... We want to be as yeah. good as you. We want to catch up to, to you because you've you've done better than us over the last 30 years. Prior to that, Liverpool was the premier city. It can swap and change, yeah. although I don't in my lifetime see anything other than Manchester's preeminence continuing. No. But you're right. It means you're all striving for that point of excellence yeah. and it does keep you on your toes, doesn't for it? For sure. Everyone who talks about Manchester talks about how good we are at collaboration, as you just said. Is that something that we've got that is special? Or, you know, what do you see in terms of DNA that's in the other cities that downtown and businesses across? Yeah, I think it is quite unique. I mean, Manchester probably has a confidence and a swagger that it's developed since sort of late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, I know a lot of people talk about the bomb and that acted as the catalyst, but actually before then, Manchester was beginning to uh, develop a reputation and a narrative around it becoming, you know, a major player in terms of the UK economy. And so I think the thing that I said earlier about people are welcomed here if they've got talent and are able to add value to, to what the city's doing, I think if you look at the way in which the city developed its relationships and those collaborations, really interesting. So when we go back to 94 and the bomb, Manchester created through the council uh, a document to rebuild that part of the city. And people like Wilson, like Peter Saville, like Tom Bloxham and others looked at the plan and said, this is shite. And they set a group up called the McEnroe Group, which actually is really what downtown's based on, to be honest. That was part of the inspiration for downtown Liverpool. And they set up this McEnroe Group because they said, McEnroe, you cannot be serious. This plan is so bad. Now, 
if you did that in any other city, my prediction is that the council leadership and the civic leadership would become totally defensive. They would go in, in themselves. They would say, you know, these guys don't know what they're talking about. They can bugger off. We've worked hard on this plan and we're, we're committed to delivering it. What does Howard do? Howard says to them, come and have a meeting. He gets them all in his office in the town or, you know, have a cup of tea, <laughs> um, which, which is Howard's favourite line. Um, and, you know, he says, to them, OK, that's great. Well, can you do better? So he's got the brains of Manchester working on a regeneration plan for nothing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then he says, yeah, we'll do that yeah. because that's better. And it's having that awareness and that ability to know that sometimes you do get things wrong mm. that I think makes Manchester stand out. And the other great thing about Manchester is it recognised early on that city councils are there to enable investment, to enable economic growth, to enable job creation. They're not there to provide all of those things necessarily. They can act as the, the, the petrol in the engine, if you like, or they can partner and they've done some great joint ventures. But they were very good at, again, selecting the right partners to deliver. And again, you know, you look at it, don't you, the Allied the Bruntwoods, the Asks, you know, they, they never put all their eggs in one basket. No. And Lango Rourke, you know, all these people have delivered great things in Manchester, but they were always in competition. They all want what's best for the city. Yeah. But from time to time, Howard had set them up, wouldn't he? He'd yeah. say, well, come on, mm -hmm. show us what you can do. Mm. And look at what that's delivered, you know, over three decades now. But if you ask me what the difference between the civic leadership in Manchester is... And therefore, that rubs off, I think, into the private sector and the wider city community and other cities. It's that this, well, we know best because we run the council attitude, just doesn't exist here. And unfortunately, and I'd have to say it still exists now, in places like Liverpool uh, and elsewhere. I think so. I think the way that the public sector here has set the values and the purpose and set the bigger picture it's set the same values and purpose for the private sector, hasn't it? And so we all are aligned in that and you don't see the same cohesion in other cities. No, for sure. I mean, I'll just tell you this story. It's a true story. So came out of politics and um, decided to set up downtown Liverpool in business. And it was very much a case of looking at what Tony and the guys had done in Manchester in terms of shaking things up, being disruptive, but working with the council as a critical friend. And we tried to do that in Liverpool. Um, now, I know for a fact um, that uh, calls were made from the leader's office in the city council to the chairman of the Chamber of Commerce at the time, David Wade-Smith, who's now chairman of downtown Liverpool, ironically, to say, how can we close this down? How can we close downtown in Liverpool. That strikes me as, as a, a city and a city leadership that lacks confidence because it doesn't want challenge. Mm. So that was Liverpool. And, you know, 18 years later, we're the biggest business organisation in the city. So what did they know? Hey, <laughs> Come to Manchester about 2008, 2009, cup of tea with Howard, because we, by this stage, established the brand in Lancashire and thought we want to do another city. And Leeds was the place that I thought of 
because this is very busy. You know, there was lots yeah. going on here at the time. Institute of Directors were doing a great job through Laura Wolfe. Chamber was doing a great job with Angie Robinson. Um, and lots of other bits and pieces sort of in our space going on. So I, I came over to see Howard to talk about setting up in Leeds. And, you know, I, I sort of presented my rationale because Howard's got connections everywhere. So, you know, if I'd have said I want to set up in Timbuktu, Howard's my first call. And he sort of sat back, you know, the way he does. He says, why are you going to Leeds? Set up here. And I said, well, it's busy. You know, it's it's busy place. Made the point about the different organisations. And he said, ah, he said, but you'll bring something different. He said, and we need we need something to shake things up. How interesting for yeah. a chief exec of a council to yeah. say that because he knew he was going to be a bit of trouble. Yeah. But he, he wasn't bothered. He doesn't mind you know. a bit of trouble. And he, he said, <laughs> you know, he'd been to some of our events in Liverpool yeah. and he said, you know, what strikes me about downtown is you get a different crowd and it's a bit younger and we need to start to bring those people into the city and get engaged with those people. So he said, tell you what, come here. He said, I'll get you your first sponsors. <laughs> so And who were they? It was Chris Oglesby. Well, he phoned Chris whilst I was there. Yeah. It's dead funny, actually, because he phoned Chris up and he went, I've got a scouser here, but he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> that, was his, that was his opening line to Chris. Met Chris, who was, you know, lovely guy, yeah. always looking to help. So Bruntwood were our first sponsor. Uh, got me into Ken Knott, yeah. a task. And then, you know, the rest is history. You only need a couple of people, don't you, to get you on your way, especially if they're of that calibre. And so that was great. But compare and contrast... So Liverpool, what can we do to close you down? Manchester, how can I help to set you up? And that, I'm afraid, is why Liverpool and other cities aren't as successful, haven't been as successful as Manchester. And let's hope that, you know, the political leaderships from those other places recognise the merit of actually working in partnership with the private sector, occasionally bringing in people who are going to be a bit disruptive mm. and you might not always agree with, but will help drive your economy forward. And, you know, Manchester has operated in a, a way which enables them to get on with everyone. I think at some point, and sooner rather than later, we do need to get back to the point where Manchester is once again seen as the city of choice for new initiatives, for new projects, for investment, because this place will continue to deliver. But I think there has been a fracture in the relationship at government level, and we need to repair that. And the private sector has got a role to play in that, which is why you and I um, set up United City. It's not the only reason, but certainly one of the reasons is that, that we see the importance of that constructive relationship between the city and Westminster. Mm. So let's just talk about United City then. I got a phone call from you and you went, I've got an <laughs> idea, are you in, kid? <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, I am in. So we joined forces with, obviously you mentioned Chris Oglesby, Gary Neville, Will Lewis. Just for the listeners who aren't quite sure maybe what United City is all about, do you want to just explain why you made that phone call? Yeah, well, I, I, I saw that all unfold, uh, the fallout, um, in terms of that relationship between Manchester and the government and, you know, instinctively I knew that wasn't where the city would want to be. I had a brief conversation with Richard uh, and Richard said, yeah, go for it. And that's the only green light you need. Howard then sort of uh, identified the people that would be interested and I should get involved. 
so I'll, yeah, I'll go to for, for you to be on his list, eh? Was that on his list? Um, so I thought you just did. You so, did uh, that day. So you got to the point where you know I think my view at that stage was we needed to set United City up to begin to have a more cordial, constructive conversation at government level if we can. And, and when we can, and, and that will happen at some point in terms of opening the, the doors of power in Whitehall. I think the other thing, though, that we all felt back in sort of October, November time was a frustration that there didn't appear to be a clear strategy as to how we were going to get out of lockdown and what we were all seeing and experiencing both within our own businesses. But I think it's interesting as the five personalities that we set this thing up with. We all work with lots of other people, lots of other businesses. And so we're aware of the impact on the wider ecosystem. It wasn't about the impact it had on downtown, RDPR, Relentless, OBI, Bruntwood. It was about our client base, our friends, our peers, the individuals who work for us and who work for other people. And we could start to see at that point a real deterioration in terms of the economic fibre of the city but also in terms of the mental health of many of the people that we work with. And, you know, you in particular were big on, on that, on, on the mental health aspect of, uh, and the impact that lockdowns have had. So I think our view at that stage was that we needed to set up something that also articulated the importance of Manchester and the importance of cities. And if we are going to bounce back, if we are ha- going to have an economic recovery that is quick, then cities are going to be crucially important and none more so than Manchester. And, you know, you you come up with, I mean, you are the master of spin with (laughs) some of the phrases. The phrase that you used I thought was perfect was, you know, Manchester's been there for you, you need to be there for Manchester. And so for me, United City can be many things uh, as it evolves and moves forward, but principally it's about ensuring that those doors of communication stay open between here and Whitehall and then we have a strategy in place to get this city rocking and rolling again as quickly as possible in a safe way but with businesses recognising and the wider community recognising the importance of our city centre to our economy. Definitely and I think that there's been some question whether or not you know obviously United City is focused on Manchester City Centre. What's our view on the combined authority? And obviously we are absolutely concerned, but I think the idea is the fact that Manchester City Centre is the powerhouse, is the engine, which means its success will flow out to all the other boroughs, won't it? You can't have a powerhouse like Manchester waiting for a Stockport, a Rochdale, a Wigan, a Berry to catch up. Right Now, that, that's no disrespect to those places, and we work with all of those places. They've got some fantastic personalities, some great chief executives working within them. Uh, and again, what I would say is Manchester's success has raised the bar in those towns. Uh, and so I think you can see brilliant regeneration projects and great work taking place in all of those, you know, Bolton and Wigan, great examples of places that, you know, 10 years ago, were not particularly investable, but certainly are now. But that's because there's been a ripple effect. So the city has generated that confidence and being part of the Greater Manchester family has enabled those places to grow. But if you now choke off the oxygen to the place that all of that wealth, all of that creativity and all of that confidence has been flowing from, then 
it's not going to benefit you in the long run. And so, you know, I've never felt uncomfortable saying it's about Manchester because if the city succeeds, then Greater Manchester as a region will succeed and, and actually the wider northwest will, con- will will succeed. So, of course, we support Greater Manchester uh, and we have great relationships with Eamon and, and the team there. Um, but ultimately, and, and I think they realise this, it's Manchester stupid. You know, if this place sings, then the whole of Greater Manchester will. And it's starting to sing a bit more, I think, now. It is. Because I it actually is. see people that I know around Manchester. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's important to say we are in the studio at Bonded Warehouse today. Um, and, yeah, I've seen lots Socially of people. Socially distanced. Socially distanced, absolutely. <laughs> Wouldn't have it any other way. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I was in town yesterday. I think I saw at least a dozen people that I've not seen for a while. So people are really feeling that fear of missing out, I think, is starting to happen now. Obviously, United City is not political, but you have been in the past. <laughs> Some people say I still am. Well, I know. Well, absolutely. And I know that you once referred to by Insider magazine, actually, as the most powerful politician in the North West. <laughs> yeah. So what was it about politics that had such a, an appeal? And when you were a little lad growing up in Bootle, um, <laughs> did you have dreams of being a politician then? I didn't. I was always interested in politics. My dad was interested in politics and we always talked about, you know, public affairs, what was on the news. He was obviously a Labour supporter. He was a trade union activist. But again, not not tribal. So, you know, not not scared to criticise Labour, not scared to, to praise the Tories if, the, if they were doing something that was right. So, you know, it was quite a healthy environment to grow up in, I think, and, and sort of made me a well-rounded individual going into politics. I mean, I went into the Labour Party in the the early 80s. The leader at the time was Michael Foote. So it was a basket case. Party needed sorting out. And I went in very much as even at sort of 17 with a pragmatic view of politics. Did I want to be a politician? Probably not at that stage. Um, but I'll tell you what I always wanted. I always wanted to have a profile, right? So I want to be a footballer. You know, as all kids did. Well, if you'd grown up in as a lad in Bootle and Skem, <laughs> you want to be a footballer. Yeah. So when that wasn't going to happen, I'd actually decided on a career in journalism, would you believe? Because I had a talent for writing. Uh, and as you know, I've always been gobby. So, you know, I could talk and write and I thought... Mm, Football journalist, that sounds like a great job. But then you realise the academic study that you've got to do with that. And as much as I enjoyed school and college, I didn't enjoy it for the academia. You know, I loved the socialising. I like copping off. Uh, (laughs) You know, that's so so my education was all about having a great time. (laughs) So I was never really cut out to go and do the degree thing. And so I sort of fell into politics. And my first job was a welfare rights advisor. And um, I, I headed up to Leicester because there were no jobs in the north at the time. If you, if you lived in Skem and you had a job, it was like winning the lottery. God. So I ended up having to move up to Leicester or down to Leicester. Up to Leicester. Down to Leicester. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I hated it. But it was a job. And the salary was £7,191 per annum. And I thought, I had won the lottery. That made me rich uh, (laughs) at the time. And it was quite a depressing job. We used to go out in a bus, a double-decker bus, that had been converted into offices. And we'd go into some of the most deprived areas of Leicester. And the people were great, by the way. When I said I hate it, it was just I was away from the family. It was 84, so Everton were having the most successful season ever and I couldn't go to the match every week. (laughs) 
bloody typical am I look. (laughs) And you've literally, from nine o'clock in the morning to six, seven o'clock at night, talking to people who are desperate. And you are literally helping them get pennies, really. And, you know, I'd done that for about nine months and I'd started to become a bit frustrated because I was there, okay, so you, you sort of, you know what it's like, Lisa, however much you earn, you spend. So I might have been helping those people for a short period of time, but I knew that it was a stick in plaster. And the 80s, you know, for people who lived through that era, it was a depressing time in the UK. It was a depressing time in our cities. And so something called community development started to emerge from the States. And I thought, actually, that's more attractive to me because it it appeared that it was something where you could work alongside the communities to help them help themselves. And it was more than just putting a few bob in the pocket. So I started to look into that and managed to secure a job initially in Deeside, but, you know, a commute from Skem to North Wales wasn't great every day. Almost a dream job at the time, I have to say. I became community development officer for Skelmersdale and did that job for, for a few years. Uh, and then went across to St. Helens because they had a really innovative community work project happening in the town. So that was three, four years stint there. And I just got to that stage where it felt to me that every time we wanted to do something... I had to go and ask a politician. So the leader at the time of St. Helens was was a guy called Mike Doyle, and Mary Rimmer was around. She's an MP now. And I remember going up and seeing them at the town hall fairly regularly to ask permission. You know, can we do this? Can we do that? And I thought, actually, that's what I need. I need to be a politician. Because if you're really going to make a difference to people's lives, then you don't want to be asking permission. You want to be doing it. Uh, And so that's when I decided, really, to to go for it. And uh, I didn't expect to get selected the first time round. So at 25, when I went to the selection hustings, you know, I was certainly the dark horse, if I can put it that way, in terms of winning the the seat. And it was quite a safe Labour seat in Scalmersdale, um, although it did include Up Holland and, and Apley Bridge as well. But I was selected. And I was selected because, again, I think I was able to explain how I saw politics at that level and, and how I thought Lancashire as a county could really help drive jobs, growth and the economy in Skem, where unemployment was still a, a huge problem. So I got selected and I was very fortunate. Uh, so I was on the county council of 26. Quick story, um, went to a, a dinner in Blackpool. It was a massive affair at uh, the Winter Gardens. It was social services directors and chairs from all over the country. And um, me and and my wife at the time were were sat on this table and the people who were sat on the table with us thought that the county council had brought social services users (laughs) to the event (laughs) because because I'm sat there. You know, everyone else in the room is about 90-12 and I'm sat there 26. Um, (laughs) Anyway, the fortunate thing for me was Louise Alban was leader and Louise was a fellow Skelmersdale councillor. I'd known her for years and she and I got on really well. And so she sort of fast-tracked my promotion. They didn't have cabinets at the time. They had chairs of committees and they had the big, the, the powerful committee was policy and resources. And I immediately went onto that 
and that was just down to her. And she acted as a great mentor for me, Louise. She became an MP for Liverpool. You know, what I would say is that <laughs> this will sound really arrogant. I was a good politician. I think I was born for politics. I am not born for business, <laughs> right? But I was definitely... I just found it dead easy. How do your dad feel about you? I mean, oh, my dad was just proud and, as yeah, punch, sure. you know. I mean, he never told me very often, yeah. occasionally, but you just see in his face. You know, me mum, who, who I'm king of the castle anyway with me mum, because I'm the only lad. Oh, um, so, yeah, he, he was really proud of me. And, that, and you, you know, again, that's that's really nice. Passed away, sadly, now, but that's nice that that, that happened. Um, but, no, you know, if you were to say to me, you know, what's your profession? I'd probably say politician even now. You say you're not good at business, but I think you've obviously taken a lot of the lessons that you've learned from politics and applied those into the business environment. And it's that link, isn't it, between understanding that we do need businesses and we need the wealth that businesses create for the greater good. So I'm interested in values, as you know. What do you think as an organisation downtown has really dug into in its history, but then maybe in the past 12 months to make sure that you can provide that platform and that objective viewpoint or support I suppose for members I think when you look back at my sort of career journey um, you know and I only sort of realised this very recently when well probably about three years ago when I got a business coach and we were reflecting on the different things I've done and actually you know the thing that drives me and motivates me is making a difference so you know welfare rights got fed up with that because I wasn't making enough difference Go to community development. Okay, well, we're not making as big a difference as it could be if it was a politician. And downtown was set up for the same reason. So I was, you know, when I came out of politics, doing consultancy work. And you will know, Lisa, you can earn fortunes doing that. Uh, had lots of lucrative contracts, was doing bits of work across the north of England, was also doing some work in China, which was fascinating. But you go in, you do a piece of work, you leave it behind. And I just thought with the people I was working with, mostly property developers in Liverpool, we could make a difference if we came together. And so downtown is something that I set up to make a difference. And, you know, I think we do. I think we do massively in all of the cities where we work, because I think even if we're not the most influential private sector voice, we are in some places, we're not in others. But I tell you what, we're never ignored and the people who are the most influential often take their leave from us. So I think, you know, we've improved the performance of other people in our space because of the fact that we've come and we've had balls. We've, we're not scared to, to offer an opinion and a view. And I think there's too many business organisations now that, that do shy away from that. I think they're a bit too reliant on the public sector purse or they're a bit worried about falling out with, you know, Andy or Steve or whoever it might be. Um, yeah, I don't like falling out with those guys. I really like them. I think they're doing a great job. But I have to say, I disagree with you. I'm quite happy to do it. Um, I don't think other people in our space are necessarily comfortable doing that. That's why you won't find me taking places on LEPs or, you know, all these sort of growth boards and what, because I'd rather be outside the tent pissing in if we have to. <laughs> um, it's true though, isn't it? You know, if, you, yeah. if you're sat alongside these guys yeah. and they're making decisions you don't agree yeah. with, but you're part of the gang, yeah. how can you then go well, out and criticise them? So I think making a difference has always been yeah. the key thing to us. 
out of our values, then, is there anything that kind of stands out to you? You've not even looked at them. <laughs> your values? Yeah. Well, we spoke about this recently. Didn't we? Yeah. Well, I actually, we had a set of values. Yeah. And they were based on, listen, I think this thing of business culture is something that we've all had, but we've never really taken account of it. And we've never, you know, you, your business has a particular culture because of you. My business has a culture because of me. So it's no good trying to create something that is not authentic and doesn't reflect the personality, the character of the leader. So that's why you've said clean the sheds because, you know, you're quite happy to roll your sleeves up and get your hands dirty when you need to. You're not going to say, oh, that's, that job's too important to do that. That's why that's in your values. The one I love, you know, no dickheads because I know Lisa Morton will not tolerate dickheads. You know, so our culture we sort of started to develop a narrative around that um, about 18 months ago. I, again, I think this was driven by David Poxon, my business coach, and I read The Barcelona Way, which I, th- I found was a fascinating book, read a few legacies, as you did, and we came up with a set of words which were not dissimilar to your values, as as you would, because I think, again, you and I have a similar approach to business. We like people, we like looking after people, but we won't tolerate dopes. So... The wording of ours was a bit fluffy after speaking to you. So we're sort of reviewing that now. Oh. We've, had, we've had a first stab at it, which right. the, the team did. I yeah. sort of took, I yeah. said, that I don't want it to change in terms of the nature of that sort of set of principles we've come up with, but we do need to sort of uh, give it more of a downtowny sort of feel in terms of the language and yours just does that so they're, they're having a look at that um, but no it's hugely important and, and actually it's become apparent to me why it's important I think sometimes businesses do that and they put the mission statements on the wall and they think there you go job done but actually it's helped me enormously over the last 12 months with recruitment so it's harder to recruit now <laughs> because I am really looking for people who are going to fit in but wow, it would have saved me so much heartache and pain over the last 16 years if we'd have applied that. I mean, I had a couple of dickheads come into my business a few years ago who I can't even name them because it wouldn't be fair. But honestly, they, they could have destroyed any other business. You know, if we'd have been a new business, mm-hmm. they, they could have destroyed it. It's interesting because you speak to so many business leaders and about the topic and they say the same, that it's life-changing for you as a personnel for a business mm-hmm. when you really stick V values because you won't tolerate stuff that doesn't align with them. And that's, it is, it makes life so much easier. And I'm glad to hear then that we've inspired you a bit <laughs> around that. I'm really sure I can't wait to hear the, uh, the ones you come out with. The new version. Yeah, the, the new version. Yeah. Brilliant. So it's a good way to go into our quick fire round. So I'm not doing the football question because everyone knows it's Everton, so I move on. So first of all, you were cited in the media a while back as one of the most popular Liverpudlians to invite to a party. So which Manx would you have there with you? Oh, God. <laughs> Tony Wilson. Yeah. Um, I'd have Rowetta because she, yeah. she'd be great on the karaoke. Uh, I'd have Gary Neville because obviously he would be the one who would just create havoc um, and I'd take certainly Lisa Morton oh, thank you. Uh, uh, there's loads of manks I'd like to Tom Tom Bloxham because he's he's great storyteller Bernstein because everyone else had won him there who else I will probably have to say just a little bit left field 
Ferran Serrano, is that his name? Yeah, the Manchester City shout, Chief yeah. Exec. Yeah, he, he is, is good value. Oh, incredible. Mm, really One of the best events we've ever done was with him. So, yeah, I mean, I could go on, you know, and I've missed anyone out there. I, I do apologise. There's uh, not many NFI than on that. Uh, Favourite view of Manchester, and you can't say the one in the rear view mirror driving towards Liverpool. <laughs> it wouldn't be that anyway. I really like, I know this has, you know, there's there's mixed views of this, but I love the Hilton, mm. you know, and the, the uh, Cloud 23. That's where we did our launch yeah, party. Launched, yeah. And I just think it's, it's an iconic building. Yeah. You know, it's really tall. I think it makes a statement. Yeah, I love it. And what's Manchester got that you wish Liverpool did? Oof. Howard Bernstein, <laughs> in two words. I mean, he, he, you know, as I said before, don't underestimate that relationship uh, that he's had with Richard. So I'll probably say both of them. That ability, as I said earlier, to, to recognise that, you know, the public sector doesn't necessarily know everything. Uh, and I think Manchester's had that in spades, but that's been driven by great leadership. So, yeah, Richard and Howard, Aww. transfer them to Liverpool for a few years and we'll soon uh, no, we'll soon catch no up with the Manx. No going nowhere. <laughs> um, and just lastly, obviously, we're all interested in legacy and, and I think we do believe that we want to put more in than we take out. I think that's a value that we share. You've already had a really colourful, diverse career, but is there anything in terms of legacy that you want to do that you've not got to yet? Oh, loads, yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned, I think that the... the the private sector voice has been diluted over the last 10 years or so. So, you know, Brexit, you know, the Prime Minister famously said, didn't he? Well, F business. You know, you've got a Prime Minister who's happy to say, he wouldn't say that about teachers' unions, would he? But he's happy to say about entrepreneurs and businesses. Uh, I think you've seen through COVID that we've been back the queue in terms of our influence, business community. So, you know, I want to create through downtown the biggest business voice in the UK because I think that we're being poorly served at the moment. So over the next three years, you know, my ambition is to continue to roll out the brand, but with the purpose of us being a genuine, bold, uh, courageous business voice. Not to fall out with people for the sake of it, because what's the point of that? But certainly to, to remind government, to remind decision makers and politicians, we are the people that pay your wages. We are the people that create wealth and we're the people that are actually going to drive the economy. We employ people. We look after the communities that we work in. You know, this idea that everybody in business is greedy and just wants to take a shilling. I haven't met anyone who's successful in business who does that. Quite the opposite. I meet people every day in business who give masses amounts back to the places where they work, masses amounts back to the staff, and that's why they're successful. But where's our place at the table of decision-making at the moment? We're consulted so that they can tick a box, but we're not really in the driving seat of where we need to be as far as economic growth and policy is concerned. So my legacy, I hope, when we get to the next three or four years, is going to be biggest business voice in the UK. Amazing. But you didn't fancy being Liverpool City Mayor then, Frank? I was asked to apply. And, you know, there's lots of barriers and hurdles you have to jump through. But where my business is at the moment, you know, I absolutely... I, I don't think I'm great at business. I'm getting better at it and I learn every day. Um, and when I said earlier, you know, I, I was more natural as a politician because you don't have to turn up. You know, you're briefed, you've got great officers, all the recruitment's done for you, they're managed. You know, I hate all that. I hate managing people. I hate finance, 
hate recruit, you know, hate recruitment. So that's why I was a good politician. Didn't have to bother with all of that. <laughs> Just took a good brief and spouted off. So the Liverpool mayor thing, for me, uh, not the right time anyway, but maybe not even the right place. If I go back into politics, then, you know, I think Lancashire is a bit of a sleeping giant. Uh, so that would probably be a more attractive proposition for me than Liverpool. And the business, as I say, at this moment in time is in a place where I think it's still got loads to go. So I, I want to do that. I want to focus on that. Brilliant. Well, good luck with that. And thank you so much for joining me. On thank the you. Sissy Frank. I mean, we speak four times a day at the moment, but I've learned <laughs> stuff today that I didn't know about. So that's been enlightening. Um, and I would absolutely recommend any listener today who's not a member of Downtown in Business to have a look at it because we will benefit from great relationships and a lot of support. And it's not networking like we used to have on a Thursday night with a warm <laughs> Prosecco standing up somewhere in a, in a conference room. And hopefully we'll never go back to that. But I will say that for me and lots of other businesses in, in certainly in Greater Manchester, there's been so much support from downtown over the past 12 months. You've been one of my pandemic mates, so you've been a real <laughs> rock and you made me laugh when it was all getting a bit too much. Um, but yeah, so good luck for 2021 and all the legacy projects that you're working on. And thanks for giving so much support to so many businesses across the region. Thank you, Lisa. And thanks for all your support as well. It's been mutual and, uh, and hopefully lots more partnership work to come. Definitely. Thanks, Frank. Cheers, Lisa. Frank McKenna helped to build this city by not asking for permission and by just doing it, by being a scouser but being all right, and by not tolerating dopes. We Build This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Ransell PR and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.